Welcome to Fertile Minds Radio. Here you'll find wisdom for your fertility journey and beyond, chosen specifically to help you trust your body and elevate your spirit so you can enjoy the process. Join us and see what a fertile mind feels like. Now your host, Hilary Talbot Rowland. Hey there, Hilary Talbot Rowland here, back with another installment of Fertile Minds Radio. Today, we have an extra special guest, Lily Nichols. She is a registered dietitian, nutritionist, certified diabetes educator, researcher, and an author with a passion for evidence-based prenatal nutrition and exercise. Drawing from the current scientific literature and the wisdom of traditional cultures, her work is known for being research-focused, thorough, and most of all, sensible. Her best-selling book, Real Food for Gestational Diabetes, and the online course that accompanies it, presents a revolutionary nutrient-dense, lower-carb diet for managing gestational diabetes. Her unique approach has not only helped tens of thousands of women manage their GD, most without the need for blood sugar-lowering medications, but has also influenced nutritional policies internationally. Lily is also the author of Real Food for Pregnancy, which outlines the gap between current prenatal nutrition guidelines and what's optimal for maternal and fetal health. This evidence-based resource has been likened to a textbook and includes over 930 citations backing the benefits of real food nutrition for pregnancy. This book is truly a book that has enough relevant scientific data in it for any woman to be able to use it to defend her food choices to her care providers and feel confident she is making the right choices when it comes to feeding her growing baby. In my opinion, this book has been long overdue in the pregnancy realm, and it is filled with stats, but anybody can read it and instantly understand it, which is why I'm so excited to have you on the show. Welcome, Lily. Thank you. Love the intro. (laughs) (laughs) It's always weird to hear about yourself, right? (laughs) It is. It is the weirdest thing. Yes. So, and we were talking before the show and probably the most important thing you've done in life so far, even though these books are super important to millions of women, is that you wrote them while you were a mom with an infant. Yeah, I I know. Yeah. First book came before I had my own kids, but uh, second book... I should say kid. There's only one <laughs> one so far. It feels uh, like two, right? <laughs> yeah. Real Food for Pregnancy, I started writing when my son was 10 months old. So uh, right in the midst of all the postpartum transition and, I mean, honestly, still healing. It takes a long time to heal from pregnancy and birth. And, and I was very much in this mind space of like, I don't know, you're just in awe of like, my body created this human being. And, you know, I was breastfeeding, and I'm still growing this human being with my body, like, wow, (laughs) how is that possible? Just sort of marveling at the just the craziness that is growing and birthing and continuing to grow a human. But yeah, I was right in the midst of healing. And and that really inspired a lot of what went into the book. And also the last chapter is all in fourth trimester postpartum. That was certainly top of mind for me to include because I was in it, you know? (laughs) Yeah. And it's such a topic that is, I think, glossed over and overlooked. And so rarely do you, you hear about postpartum depression and what to do after it strikes, but rarely do I see providers talking about what to do for prevention. And your book actually does that by saying like, Hey, if you eat correctly, you'll have less occurrence of it possibly. And, you know, here's what to do when it comes. And I think that's so important because- we have this emphasis on 
in the fertility world of just get pregnant, but really it should be and carry to term and have a healthy baby and right. have a happy postpartum. Right, right, right. right. And, and especially for women who are undergoing any sort of fertility treatment, the chances of certain pregnancy complications are higher. And also the odds of a maternal mental health issue are also higher. So even more important, um, if, if it's been like, you know, a, a long journey to get pregnant to really, uh, you know, prioritize food and self-care during and after pregnancy to to just keep you well, keep you well, keep baby well. Yeah. You know, in Chinese medicine, there's this whole concept of the fourth trimester. There's, um, there's an actual name for it as part of the pregnancy. And it's in Asian culture, you actually, your in-laws come and move in with you and cook for you and clean. And your job is to basically lay in bed and nurse and sleep. And yes. it's said that that sets the tone for yes. the rest of both of your lives. <laughs> And when I explain that to my patients, they look at me like slightly horrified that I'm suggesting their in-laws come with uh, them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, no, no, no. You just need good food. You need people to show up on your doorstep with food. <laughs> well, I think what happens is you're so, when you are early postpartum, you're so blindsided by the, I really can't do anything for myself that right. for a while, I mean, that you really do need that support. Like you start looking back at the traditions of all these different cultures across the globe. And it's like, not just Asian cultures, you go like South America, Africa, Middle East, <laughs> Asia, India, all over the place, they had this, this concept of the fourth trimester that they, you know, gave different names for. But the customs are all strikingly similar. And it's definitely something I think we can learn from. <laughs> Especially yes. when you start hearing accounts of women who have like had a postpartum experience in one country that still embraces these practices more and then moves to Western culture. And it's like the difference in their healing and their experience and their bonding with the baby and their mental health issues and all of that is you know, compromised by this crazy, unrealistic yes. expectation that you're just going to manage it all. So you're going to have this baby, your body's going to shrink back to normal, your skin will all come back, your muscles will all come together, your pelvic floor will just heal normally, your breast milk will just come in with ease, no issues there, and you'll go back to work, and you'll somehow manage to pump, and you'll somehow manage to get food on the table, and you'll you know, it's, it's like all these things that are just so unrealistic, like you just can't do all of it, you have to a pick and choose and then b allow yourself time to really heal and, and nourish yourself. So anyways, long tangent to go on, but we're definitely on the same page on, on the postpartum healing. Well, it's okay. My listeners know that I usually start backwards. I start at the end sometimes. So this is in keeping with if they're used to listening. Perfect. <laughs> so I am curious, though, how did you land yourself in the realm of nutrition for pregnancy and specifically gestational diabetes? Because I feel like that's not something somebody grows up thinking, I'm going to cure gestational diabetes. Yeah, it's, it is a very niched part of the nutrition field to end up in. You know, it was, it was almost by accident that I got into the field. I was looking for a part-time role to work in the nutrition field, but not be in a hospital because I had so many aversions to continuing to work in a hospital. And I, I saw a job opening for California Diabetes and Pregnancy Program, uh, which was a nonprofit with the state of California that worked on public policy for gestational diabetes for the state. 
um, which a lot of the rest of the country usually ends up adopting because California tends to be proactive (laughs) and progressive. And I started working with them. And that led me to working clinically with gestational diabetes and putting into practice some of the guidelines that I had helped form and see how they work in real life. And it was pretty disheartening to implement the guidelines and see a lot of my patients' blood sugars get worse, or at the very least not improve. And the common sense side of me and sort of the, I had always been sort of real food leaning was like, you know, the current guidelines don't make a lot of sense because they're pretty high carb. Gestational diabetes can be defined as carbohydrate intolerance during pregnancy, meaning women with it are not able to tolerate large amounts of carbohydrates without having their their blood sugars elevated when they have too many carbs, period. (laughs) So why would we push a diet that's really high carb to women who can't tolerate carbohydrates? It doesn't really make sense. So that led me down this very long path of researching if it would be safe to go lower lower carb, how you could do it, would we still, you know, have a diet that had the same nutrient density? Surprise surprise, you actually have a more nutrient dense diet when you, you know, displace those carbohydrates with other more nutritious foods and started using it and had excellent outcomes. Um, so women had better managed blood sugar, our rates of requiring insulin and medication were cut in half, like almost instantly. The providers I was working with at the time thought that I was just like some amazing nutrition counselor, like I had amazing counseling skills and was able to get women to be more compliant with the advice, but I was just offering better advice. (laughs) So (laughs) uh, yeah, the rates of um, birth complications, uh, weight gain during pregnancy normalize, uh, the rates of large babies in our practice went way, way, way down, NICU admissions went down. A lot of times I'd see the women postpartum, they'd be like at their pre-pregnancy weight at six weeks, or if they started their pregnancy you know, at a a higher weight, oftentimes they had like come to a a normalized weight, meaning they weighed less postpartum than they did before getting pregnant. (laughs) It was like crazy. So all these outcomes improved. And that encouraged me to get the information out to other providers, because the current guidelines on gestational diabetes are super backwards, as I kind of alluded to. And I knew I needed to put it in a format that was backed by research. So it's not just some crazy person's opinion, but like, no, it's actually safe to go lower carb. There's benefits to doing it. Here's how to do it safely. So that pushed me to write my first book, Real Food for Gestational Diabetes. And I had no idea if anybody would care if I would sell any copies, (laughs) if anyone would be interested And I was pretty surprised that it gained popularity very quickly. And you you search Amazon for gestational diabetes, it's the first thing that pops up and has been since I published it a little over three years ago. So it's uh, been really cool to see it grow, see it become more common knowledge, to see um, care providers changing policy. There are several nutrition schools that use it in their maternal nutrition courses, and it even influenced the Czech Republic changed their gestational diabetes dietary guidelines and dropped a mandatory minimum requirement for carbohydrates from them. And they're seeing better outcomes in that country. So it's been totally a surprise, (laughs) but it's uh, been really cool. So the second book is really a, a kind of a continuation of the first book. It's an entirely different animal, but it's, you know, along the same vein of real food. You know, a lot of pregnant women, even if they're, they, you know, are starting pre-pregnancy eating really well, you get information about 
pregnancy nutrition that sometimes doesn't steer you in the right direction. So you're told this like big list of foods to avoid. You're told you need to eat more carbs. You're told you need to limit your fat. You're told all of this advice. And even if you have, you know, a pretty strong nutrition background, it's like scary to go against that because you think you're going to do something wrong for your baby. So for me, it was like the real food for pregnancy was about, again, like backing this whole philosophy this real food philosophy around eating with data so that women can feel comfortable with their decisions. They know that if they are doing something that is contrary to what some pamphlet their doctor gave them or what they read on the internet or what they got from some other book on pregnancy nutrition, that they know that it's valid and backed by research. It's it's an evidence-based approach to take. I love that you've provided two huge gifts to every pregnant woman on the planet if she chooses to read these, because truly those recommendations are so outdated. And it's not just gestational diabetes. If you look at the recommendations for diabetes, I'm always like, what? You can have two glasses of alcohol and you can have a piece of bread. Why would you want to do that? Yeah, or or like not even a piece of bread, but like you can have four servings or five servings of carbohydrates at a meal. Which like doesn't yeah, make there's sense. No, well, and put my tinfoil hat on for a second. It makes sense if you're not interested in curing it. Yeah. <laughs> right. Diabetes is a huge but you industry. Can. Yeah, you can turn these around. And and what I think a lot of women don't fully grasp is that the nutrition before they get pregnant actually influences the quality of the sperm and the egg. And what they pass down genetically not only shows up in their child's health for the rest of their child's life potentially, but it's actually passed down two generations, right? Yeah, or even beyond that. Yeah. Yeah, we don't even really know, right? We've only followed two generations with the Dutch famine studies, right? Animal studies, some of them do further generations because they reproduce so quickly. So you can like track those things. Human lifespans are (laughs) like scientific research doesn't date far enough back for us to go beyond two generations or so. But um, yeah, the epigenetic impact of diet before and during pregnancy or coming back to gestational diabetes, blood sugar levels during pregnancy, it plays a huge role in a child's later risk for diseases. And some of this stuff can get kind of, you know, scary, scary. And I'm always trying to like, take a step back and put things into context for people. So we're not, we don't get into this like fear based decision making, but more come at it more from a proactive stance, like, okay, here's what can happen if XYZ, not a great outcome. But here's what can happen if, you know, ABC, good outcome, right? Here's what can can happen on the flip side. So absolutely, getting adequate amounts of certain nutrients, avoidance of having high blood sugar, there's a number of different topics we could go into. Those can play a role in a kid's later risk for high blood pressure, Um, obesity, type 2 diabetes, and a whole host of other things. We'll have to have you back on the show and do an entire episode on gestational diabetes. But I know that there are a lot of questions I want to ask you about the real food for pregnancy. So we'll kind of change gears into that. But one of the things that I I appreciated so much is that when you broke down the macros that you suggested uh, in your diet, which is a low carb diet, like you mentioned, it is a, that's not something that you hear often uh, that you should do when you're, you're pregnant. But when you compared it to the regular nutritional guidelines for pregnancy, your diet was, I think, mm, I don't have the book in front of me, 30 calories more, but it was more nutrient dense in every single category. And I found that fascinating of look what happens when you use real food. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I had to 
believe it or not, that was actually an afterthought to include in the book. <laughs> Someone suggested it to me. I had done the analysis and written out some comparisons between a conventional prenatal nutrition meal plan and a, a real food one. And I even I just chose one at random for the book and ran a nutrient analysis. And it was vastly different. Yes, the macronutrients are different, but more so than that is the resulting change that you get in the vitamin and mineral concentration and uh, levels and ratios of essential fatty acids like omega-6 to omega-3. Pretty much the real food one was more nutrient dense in every category except uh, vitamin B1, they were tied. So it's wild that we're still recommending what we're recommending, you know, as a whole on like government dietary guidelines. I mean, the conventional meal plans breakfast was oatmeal, low fat milk and strawberries. I mean, (laughs) I don't know, even if you don't know anything about nutrition, but you're just like listening to the cues your body gives you when you eat. Does anybody feel satisfied from plain oatmeal, low fat milk and strawberries? Like, how soon are you hungry after eating that? And how can we expect a pregnant woman to be satisfied from a meal that has like no protein and very low fat. I I just, I don't know. But um, well, in that combination would bloat the heck out of most women. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Anytime you put the fruit with the oats and then the add some dairy and then you go (laughs) and you have high carb and it raises your blood sugar. It opens up your lower esophageal sphincters. This is like a heartburn meal waiting to happen also. Yeah, it's it's crazy. So yeah, if people are interested in that, I actually give away the first chapter of the book for free over at realfoodforpregnancy.com. So if you just want to see a comparison meal plan and nutrient breakdown, like that's that's freely available for you to look at. And then of course, the macronutrients are going to be a lot different. So the proteins on my plan is higher, the fats higher, and the carbohydrate is quite a bit lower. Okay. And what is it around the average of the daily intake of carbohydrates in your plan? Uh, This particular meal plan was 26% carbs, 24% protein, 51% fat. I'd say the the carbs are, carbohydrates are the most contentious macronutrient. I mean, maybe fat is tied for it, but I think in the current state of what everybody is arguing about, I feel like fat has gained more acceptance and people are still arguing about carbs. Like how low can you go? How high should you go? Could you do damage doing low carb? And so I I end up somewhere in the moderately low carb realm for most people. And I usually refer to like a gram amount versus percentage of calories because I feel like that's almost impossible for people to track. And it also makes them track calories, which is (laughs) obnoxious for many reasons. But um, yeah, especially when you're pregnant. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. But somewhere between like 90 to 150 grams of carbs, I think is right for most women and there's always wiggle room to go below that so somebody who has blood sugar issues particularly or um, has blood pressure issues because blood pressure and blood sugar issues usually go hand in hand you may want to err on the lower carb side or if you are somebody who gains weight relatively quickly in pregnancy and or started your pregnancy at a higher weight than you'd like lower carb makes a lot of sense Um, you're helping keep insulin resistance in check And if you're someone who's pretty, you know, active, naturally tends to be pretty lean, um, you probably have more wiggle room for carbs, just as long as they're not displacing other more nutrient dense foods. Because when you start looking at the research studies on like, how do you meet 
the nutrient requirements of pregnancy, the more carbohydrates you eat in general, the lower the, the concentration of micronutrients in your diet, meaning vitamins and minerals. Now, this is less of an issue if you're getting like all of your carbs from nutrient dense sources. I'm talking like sweet potatoes and root vegetables and fruit and nuts and seeds versus most of your carbohydrates from refined grains and the like, but still it, it plays a role. You look at which nutrients are required for pregnancy and most of those end up in the lower carb food categories just by default. <laughs> so, yes. so, you know, ca caution with that. So I, I let the carb level be, you know, individualized to a woman, but in general, even on this plan, which some people wouldn't even consider that low carb. I mean, it has 156 grams in the plan that I have before you subtract fiber from it. You know, it's not like there's a ton of what most people would think of as carbs in the plan, right? right? So it's not like I have, you have like servings of grains and potatoes and rice at every single meal on this plan, which is what most people think of when they think high, moderate or high carb. And it's like, no, when you actually start running nu nutrient analyses, you can see how carbohydrates are really in every plant food, <laughs> almost every plant food, except like the pure fats. And so they do add up over the course of whatever else you're eating in the day. So you don't necessarily need to go out of your way to like seek adding in super carb dense food sources. You're still going to get them unless you're like somebody who eats like pure carnivore, which is probably like fraction of a percentage of the population. <laughs> so right. Yeah. And that's definitely not happening when you're pregnant because most of the women I know have crazy aversions to meat, yes. especially in the first trimester. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, yeah, for sure. So one of the arguments that I hear from care providers is of why they don't want this to happen is that ketones will appear in the urine during pregnancy, but this is actually a normal condition of pregnancy. Yes. <laughs> right. And I think there's definitely some miseducation out there um, when it comes to nutrition. And I think I read a stat in your book that actually points out that only 25% of the MDs in the country had to go through nutritional classes for obstetrics. Nutritional classes, period, not for obstetrics. Yes. Yeah. It's there, there is very little nutrition education overall for MDs. And then the nutrition education that they might get is, you know, it's the same government stuff that we've all heard since the eighties. So it's not as if they're going to be super aware of all the, the intricacies. They just are taught the, the very, very basics if those at all, and then whatever, whatever continuing education they might do on their own. Okay, so let's get into some specific foods because you you devoted some chapters to some foods that I feel like are hot button topics. <laughs> and one of them in particular, I, I absolutely love because I prescribe it all the time for infertility, which is liver. Yes. <laughs> And most people's eyes get really big. They're like, you want me to eat what? <laughs> and you even have recipes of how to make it taste good and how to hide it in food in your books. Yes. And since you are the nutritional expert, I want you to explain to our listeners why liver is so important to build a healthy baby. So, so many reasons. And I get the same responses from people when I say liver people just sort of look at me like a deer in the headlights <laughs> yes <laughs> and, and I get it it's also we're only in this place because most of us did not grow up 
eating organ meats. I know I didn't. No, white chicken only. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, my, my mom was pretty nutrition aware, but being nutrition aware back in those days meant like chicken instead of red meat, whole grains, not a whole lot of fat, you know, low fat dairy, air on the vegetarian side of things. And we, we still ate mostly home cooked, you know, good quality foods, but certainly liver was not on the menu. <laughs> and if right. we go back several generations, you'll see that organ meats were a, a part of the diet. And certainly in traditional cultures, um, past and present that are still eating their traditional diet, organ meats were consumed. That's the most nutrient dense part of an animal. It also honors the animal to like eat all the parts of said animal. So it's, it's been funny in my own, you know, nutrition journey over the years, because I was a vegetarian for a while to like go from, you know, shunning animal products altogether. And, you know, doing mostly like, white meat and low fat and like soy and all that stuff to moving towards like, we are having liver. <laughs> it's just, it's crazy. But if you run a nutrient analysis on liver, you find that it is highly, highly nutrient dense, arguably the most nutrient dense food or one of the most that we have on the planet. It's the single richest source of dietary well-absorbed heme iron. Uh, also vitamin B12, it's like 200 times more concentrated in vitamin B12 than muscle meats, um, which is really important for all sorts of processes going on in pregnancy. But B12 deficiency could put you at risk for miscarriage, also put your baby at risk for neural tube defects. That'd be something that would happen in early pregnancy. So certainly fertility and planning for pregnancy, liver is a good thing to include. It's also really rich in a nutrient called choline, which is a nutrient that's getting on more people's radar nowadays, which is great. It's a B vitamin-like compound. I call it folate's long-lost cousin because it, it functions right alongside folate in that same nutrient methylation cycle. So it also plays a role in preventing neural tube defects. Everybody just thinks folate or folic acid, and it is not just one vitamin. There are many things involved in that process. And choline is arguably just as important or maybe even more so than uh, folic acid. Our research on choline is relatively new because we didn't even have a recommended intake level for choline until 1998. And that level was set based on studies for men, by the way, and, and for preventing like liver damage or reversing fatty liver disease. And then they just make like a factorial estimate to like up it for pregnant women. And now we're finding, which is fine. It's all fine and good to do that because in a lot of ways, all of our guesses for nutrient needs and pregnancies are just, it's just guesstimates because you can't do a lot of studies on pregnant women for ethical reasons. But we now have some pretty good research, some like randomized controlled trials supplementing pregnant women, meaning like human pregnant women with choline at double, more than double the current recommended amount, having superior outcomes. So like better placental function, uh, lower chances of preeclampsia, and also be better neural development in babies. So they've supplemented women with like, just above the current recommended amount, and then twice that, and that all the babies in the group at the levels twice that every time point they're tested in infancy, their reaction time is significantly faster. So choline is a super, super, super important nutrient. And right now, 94% of women don't even meet the current recommended intake. Okay, so, and we likely need probably double that. Our two best food sources 
are liver and egg yolks. So if you're not eating liver and egg yolks, you're almost guaranteed to not be getting enough choline. It's also something that rarely makes it into prenatal vitamins for a variety of reasons. So liver is just really important. I mean, I've only highlighted three nutrients so far, but you could go through a variety of different B vitamins. You could go through uh, vitamin K2, zinc, just vitamin A. That's a whole other, that's a whole other controversial area to get into, but it's just an extremely nutrient dense food. It's something that you don't need a large quantity of to get a lot of nutrition from just because the nutrients are so concentrated in it. In my book, I provide, you know, some recipes that incorporate liver into like a larger meal. So you're not just eating like liver and onions. I mean, since I didn't grow up eating liver, I certainly don't really like sitting down to a meal of just liver. But when it's incorporated into an overall meal, it's actually pretty good. It just adds flavor and doesn't feel like you're just eating an yeah. organ. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> so. Same way. I am like smell averse. Can't like if you were cooking liver and onions in my house, I would walk right out the front door. And I actually really don't like I have a, some texture versions yeah. too. So like pate mm. is not my thing, even though my husband loves it. But we have this amazing vegetarian restaurant by my house called The Reading Room. Well, it's not just vegetarian, but it's mainly so like they, you know, they farm their own vegetables and it's just, it's awesome. But they have this chicken liver mousse oh. appetizer from organically raised chickens. And I am telling you, I could lick the plate. <laughs> it is that so good. That just sounds like a fancy way to say pate. Maybe you need to find a better pate recipe. Yeah. It's like, um, well, you know how sometimes you get pate out and it's like that, it almost reminds me of jello. Yes. Like it's thicker. This is almost like whipped cream cheese. Okay. Like it's so light and airy and you just spread a little bit on their homemade fermented sourdough bread and it's like it's such a treat and I, I don't even notice that I'm eating liver yeah. and I send people there all the time to eat it not one has come back and said I can't eat that let me let me ask you this have you ever made pate yourself or have you always bought it pre-made no I've never made it my husband I'm pretty lucky he is the chef in the relationship I can cook but you know he's the he's the one with the French laundry cookbooks in the sous vide machine <laughs> pulling oh, out some stops. You are lucky. <laughs> I'm very lucky. <laughs> well, let me tell you this. So I have the same the same complaints about pate. When it's like pre-made, like solidified, they usually have like that little gelatin like aspic layer over the top as like to help preserve it. Like it's just, it develops off flavors very quickly. If you make liver pate fresh and then like eat it that day, delicious. I could like eat a pretty large serving of it. Once it's like in the fridge and it's sat for a day or two, the flavor changes and it's no longer enjoyable. And then I need to like put it in a recipe that has ground meat and like mix it into something. But if your husband likes making liver pate or is willing to make it, I bet you, you would like it if it was fresh. And if you want it to be mousse, mousse like just have <laughs> them add more heavy cream to it and just blend it longer. And you'll probably end up with like the same delicious thing that your restaurant does. I'm so, so high maintenance, right? Hey, babe, can you add more heavy cream to this? But you know what? <laughs> if you get like a couple bites of liver in, it's kind of worth it nutritionally. <laughs> it is. It is. And it's, I feel like you can, because it's so dense, you only need a little bit, which when you're pregnant yes. and you're nauseous and things aren't sitting well, or maybe you could eat something one day, but not the next. Yes. You know, I'm always recommending eggs because like you pointed out, they're, they're brain food for your developing baby. And 
sometimes like you eat eggs one day and the next day you're like, "Mm, not happening today. Exactly. Exactly. Eggs are a much easier sell on the choline thing. Yes. And in fact, I don't think you could, I don't think it would be advisable to try to meet all of your choline needs from liver. It's it's like too nutrient dense for you to meet all of your choline needs for liver. It is super dense in choline, but you're much more likely to meet your choline needs from eggs and then incorporate, you know, a few ounces of liver a week over the course of the week into different dishes. And then you're not getting excessive quantities of of anything. But also your body kind of doesn't let you eat excessive quantities of liver. Like, no, (laughs) just become averse to it when you've had enough. So I think these like warnings for pregnant women to not consume liver are pretty misguided and also not common sense because for anybody who's eaten liver you know you hit your quota pretty quickly right like when you get the plate at the restaurant you look at it and you're like oh that's dainty that's cute and then you're full at the end and you're like I I don't need dinner now that was that was enough exactly (laughs) yeah your body like actually gets full from nutrients (laughs) it's like when you're eating like nutrient devoid food just like processed stuff or bread or pasta it's like oh, I feel satisfied. Then like 30 minutes later, you're like starving, need more food. Like it's like, it's almost as if like, yeah, there's a blood sugar response issue going on there, but there's also your body didn't get the nutrients it needs to function and it's looking for more. It's like telling you to eat. That doesn't really happen with liver. I've I've never met somebody who overeats liver. No, you can stop the hanger immediately with that food. (laughs) Yeah. So I loved what you said about your journey of using all the parts of an animal because I too was a vegetarian for 10 years when I was younger and um, I was not a healthy vegetarian. I needed meat. I was just one of those people. And and that's actually one of my cells now of like, I'm trying to get a woman that, you know, if her pulses and her tongue and her symptoms tell me she's really what we call blood deficient, then, you know, sure, liver is a big stretch, but I feel like bone broth isn't. And it's so high in glycine and collagen. And it's, if you're using organic bones, it's really this beautiful thing to use part of an animal that would be discarded, right? So if you've got ethical issues with it, you're actually honoring the animal by, by using them. I completely agree. Typically, you can get broth down, right? And you can batch cook it. And you can use it as a base for other soups or sauces or even to cook other foods. I mean, especially if you you are including some some grains or something, that's a great way to up the nutrient density of them. Like cook your rice and bone broth. Like immediately you're like fortifying it, so to speak, with some protein and really important amino acids. But yeah, I, I completely agree with you. The the whole question of like ethically consuming animals is probably a bigger discussion than we can have here but I'm I'm big on when choosing animal foods choosing the the best quality that you have available and can afford so especially animals raised on pasture grasslands and then also using all the parts of the animal because like if you just in the past couple years we've our family has started doing a cow share and this past year we also did a pig share not the whole animal because it's like a massive quantity of of meat and food but like a portion of a cow portion of a pig from a from a local farmer and when you eat an animal in that way you can just see like how it's such a privilege to be able to go to a grocery store and get like a package of pork chops or a package of perfectly cut filet mignon like how many filet mignons are you going to get off of the quarter cow that you bought 
Like, I think I might, might have gotten like two or three tiny packages from my cow. Like, most of what you're getting is meat on the bone. It's mostly tough cuts of meat. I also personally request the organs and the fat. So like I render the fat that provides pretty much all the fat I need for the whole year. I barely, only for salads, am I using like oils and I'm not having to go and buy a, you know, 10 or $12 jar of grass fed tallow. I can like render a giant batch and have like eight quarts, <laughs> which is going to last me probably more than a year when you consider that plus the tallow plus, you know, the butter we have. So like all the fats taken care of, I get you know, meat that I cook in the slow cooker, I save the bone for afterwards, I when I have enough bones, I make another batch of bone broth. So it's like, really stretching your food as long as possible. I make a big batch of pate that goes into any of the ground meat dishes to again, fortify it with all those important nutrients that are in liver, but like, nothing goes to waste. And our family can easily we don't even have to do this every year. I mean, we just keep a deep freezer with the meat and we are con- the majority of our meat consumed is coming from a half a pig and a quarter cow, like a portion of two animals. And then plus we get, you know, fish and eggs and other things. But it's like, isn't that a more ethical way to do it to purchase from a farmer who's allowing their animals to, you know, roam their lands eating grass their whole life? They're, you know, humanely slaughtered at the time, processed by a local processor. So you're like helping the local economy, you know, not buying every little thing wrapped in plastic and styrofoam at the grocery store. I mean, there's so many things that you could go into, but um, to me, it makes a lot of sense. And every other traditional culture uses all the parts of the animal. Things don't go to waste. You're honoring every single thing that 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 animal has provided for you. That's awesome. I think I, I have a new idea for you for a new online course. I think you should do a masterclass of how you feed your family off <laughs> two animals basically oh, a go. year. <laughs> oh, and all the cooking techniques because these yeah. are lost. Like, you know, my generation and, and I think we're around the same age, you know, I'm about to turn 40 and my mom was a working woman and a single mom and, you know, she did her best to raise us, but like she was not in the kitchen. Like there, that was not passed down to me. Mm-hmm. And so what do you do when you like, you know, I know how to buy tallow in a jar, but I couldn't tell you how to make it. Right. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. These are things that they are, they are kind of a lost art <laughs> it's, and it's very, it's sad. I mean, that's something that I'm trying to remind people of too, is that a lot of these things are just, they're, they're basics. Like my work tends to get really detail oriented for better or for worse, because I'm straddling like the uber scientific clinical got to prove that this is, you know, a justifiable way to go about feeding yourself during pregnancy and postpartum. And then also like the practical side of like, here's how you do it. And a lot of this stuff really comes down to very basic culinary skills. And my mom did cook, but she wasn't cooking in the way that I cook nowadays. I did a lot of like back learning. It was also a personal interest of mine. Like back when Food Network was just starting out, like I was watching all of those, like when like Emerald Live was on. <laughs> remember that? Yes, and like pow. Martha Stewart <laughs> living on like PBS or CBS or whatever network she was on. Like I learned a lot of skills from cooking shows. I learned a lot of skills from um, Nourishing Traditions, which is like a really wonderful cookbook slash textbook from um, Sally Fallon. Yeah. So the Weston Price principles, I learned a lot from that. And then you also just learn a lot from just experimenting. I mean, 
I didn't grow up cooking a lot of meat. We didn't have red meat in the house almost at all. It was pretty much always chicken and turkey. And I didn't know how to cook a steak. I'm still not a huge steak eater because it's like something that I didn't grow up eating. So it's not like ingrained in my DNA, but like slow cooking meat, you know, these are all things that you just sort of learn. And then you realize it's extremely simple. Like the same principle applies to like almost every tough cut of meat, cook it for a long time in a moist environment. And nowadays that's turned into stick it in the instant pot with, you know, a certain like (laughs) about a teaspoon or so of salt per pound of meat, whatever spices I want, half cup to one cup of liquid, 45 minutes. Like, seriously, like, it's it's gotten to the point where it's just, it's almost like on autopilot. And I don't spend a lot of time in the kitchen. I just like do a lot of similar things, but change out the spices. And then it's also just about making things taste good, which is something I'm really passionate about. Like we need to make our food taste good. If your food tastes like garbage, you're, you're cooking it wrong. If your vegetables taste like nothing, you're not adding enough salt, you're not adding enough fat, you've cooked them wrong somehow. Overcooked, undercooked, didn't brown it, wrong method, boiled it, pretty much always the wrong method unless you're making soup, you know? Right. Um, yeah, this, so these things are, are so like basic and fundamental. So I agree with you. I wish I had the means to, and like a gorgeous kitchen to do some crazy cooking masterclass. Right. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, you bring up a good text, the Weston A. Price Nourishing Traditions. I do think that is definitely dense in teaching you how to like use full fat dairy and how to ferment your own foods. And um, which is another thing that you advocate and and I'm in total agreement. You know, I can't tell you how many times I'm like, please don't buy the fat-free yogurts full of sugar. Yes. And weird things. Yes. (laughs) Please eat the full fat. Yeah. And it's funny like how, how long it takes for these, this kind of messaging to get out. There's also everybody's coming from a different place and has different context behind things. So I think a lot of people in sort of the real food, lower carb, paleo, keto realm, whole foods, Weston Price kind of realm, they're like already gung ho on fats. And then if like me, you've worked in, you know, a clinical environment and like a low income inner city area or worked in hospitals you see that these messages aren't getting out. Like we all have our little nutritional like dietary echo chamber. So like among my colleagues and people who've worked with me, I'm like, yay, like the pro full fat message is getting out. And then you go back to outside of that realm, I guess I'll just say. And people are still like throwing away the yolks when they're making their eggs in the morning or they're buying egg whites only because that's better for their cholesterol or they're still buying margarine. Like you look at what's on the shelves. I mean, there's a reason those things are still on the shelves because people are still buying them. Right. (laughs) So there's a lot of re-education and undoing of, you know, decades and decades of misinformation that uh, still needs to happen. So I think at large, we we have a lot of work to do on, on that regard. And some of the stuff that I find myself, or I should say found myself citing as I was writing the book, I'm like, do I really need to cite this? Like, saturated fat isn't actually bad for you. I guess I do. Okay, let me pull up like, you know, half a dozen studies to cite right here. <laughs> like, because people don't realize that there actually is a lot of information showing that, you know, an alternative approach actually works and is backed by a lot of data. No, this is very true. And that's, you know, I'm sure part of your 
reasoning for spending so much time and writing the book and why I do this podcast in my spare time, um, which is not much, but to get this message out, because like you said, when you're engrossed in these conversations every day, you think everybody knows that. And it, and it's really not true when you get to the general public of what they've been taught as kids. And I see it with my own kids in their public education. They come home from health class and I'm like, what'd you learn about a heart smart diet today? And it's, of course, it's like filled with grains and low fat yeah. foods. And I'm like, oh. yeah, I know. <laughs> okay. I know it's bad. <laughs> yeah, let's talk about what's really good. Come in the yeah. kitchen. <laughs> so you do do a great job of dispelling some myths in this book around so many things, not just food. There's exercise chapters and toxicity. And if we have time, we'll get to that. But one of the things that I noticed in there that I had to mention because so many pregnant women will tell me like, or my fertility patients, you know, if they're undergoing a transfer or something, they'll be like, I had my last cup of coffee and my last sushi hurrah. Oh, yes. <laughs> and you actually point out that small amounts of caffeine are okay. And in fact, in um, places like Japan, it's actually advised that you eat fresh, clean cuts of raw fish. Can you talk about that? Well, yeah, first of all, the caffeine part that's even in conventional recommendations. Even conventional guidelines say it's fine to have up to 200 milligrams of caffeine a day, which is about two small cups of coffee. And if your cups aren't that small or your coffee is very strong, maybe you're on the side of one. <laughs> caffeine <Starbucks>. content is based on <laughs> yeah. how strong you like your coffee. So yeah, caffeine, uh, I think way less of a concern than people need to be a little less crazy about it than a lot of people are, meaning you don't have to go completely cold turkey. And in fact, if you're going to cut it out, because some people end up averse to coffee anyways, you probably want to wean yourself off so you don't have like caffeine withdrawal symptoms, which you're already feeling like so awful in the first trimester. Why make yourself feel worse? You know? <laughs> um, the food safety stuff, though, you know, the reason I wanted to dive into this is that I noticed that a lot of people uh, will cut out certain food groups or foods entirely because of some supposed food safety risk. And then there becomes this sort of what's worse avoiding all possible causes of getting sick, meaning getting like foodborne illness or food poisoning or risking nutrient deficiencies. And we kind of have to weigh the two. So a lot of the foods to avoid, you're usually told to avoid them mostly for a, a food safety issue, meaning getting sick. And when you start to look at the relative risk of getting sick from the foods that make that list, such as eggs with runny yolks, deli meat, soft cheeses, the odds are actually very, very low. So like the odds that an egg contains salmonella are estimated to be one in 12,000 to one in 30,000. Meaning you might come across one egg that's contaminated with salmonella from 12 to 30,000 eggs. And furthermore, if you source your eggs from healthy hens raised in like organic or pasture-raised conditions, the chances that an egg will be contaminated with salmonella is sevenfold lower. So very, very rare that you'll even come across one egg that might have salmonella over the course of your pregnancy. And then what if you are that person who only enjoys your eggs cooked like over easy or with runny yolks? I am one of those people. Well, you cut out eggs and then you're cutting out probably the main source of choline in your diet. Like egg eaters on average consume double the quantity of choline as non-egg eaters. And I already gave you the stats on how 
few women already meet choline requirements, even at the current amount. So like no one is hitting the amount that these studies have found is optimal, (laughs) essentially is what I'm saying. So you just have to be choosy about how you incorporate these recommendations and then also weigh the benefits and the risks. If you're somebody who really enjoys hard-boiled eggs and scrambled eggs and eggs with runny yolks are like, eh, take it or leave it, then you've got nothing to worry about. Keep eating your eggs how you like them. If you're somebody who likes them only with runny yolks and you're concerned about getting sick, probably even more reason to source your eggs from somebody who's raising their chickens right and know that the risk is extremely low, but your risk of being nutrient deficient is extremely high if you choose to opt out of eggs entirely. So, you know, opt out and take a choline supplement. I mean, you're still miss out on all these other nutrients that would be in the egg. So my stance on the egg thing is eat your eggs, however you like them cooked, even if the yolks are runny. You start going into, you know, the the deli meat issue or the soft cheese, the estimation of uh, cases of listeria infection for deli meat by pregnant women is one in 83,000 servings of deli meat or one in 5 million servings of soft cheese. Again, extremely rare. And they did a study out of um, Australia where they looked at women who strictly follow the guidelines to limit their consumption of any of these foods that could make them sick. And they found that women were actually more likely to be deficient in certain nutrients. The ones that they specifically looked at were uh, fiber, folate, iron, vitamin E, and calcium. They found all of those it was more likely women would be deficient if they strictly avoided these off-limit foods. So their recommendations were actually to like eh, ease up a little bit <laughs> because they they were that was a study that was actually weighing the benefit versus risks. And then you look at okay, well if these things are so rare for you to get sick from, then what are you most likely to get sick from? And it's raw fruits and vegetables, cantaloupe, especially vegetables that are pre-cut in the grocery store or like at some you know fruit vendor on the side of the road or vegetables, fresh fruits and vegetables, you're most likely to get sick from. So if you're going to be super cautious about anything, it should be like the freshness and quality of your greens and produce. It's like leafy greens and fruit, (laughs) the biggest contributors. But nobody tells you to not eat an apple or to not eat pre-cut up pineapple or to not eat cantaloupe or to not eat spinach salads. It's all the undercooked meat and fish and soft cheeses and eggs that that gets the scarlet letter. So it's just as, it's arbitrary is, is all that I'm pointing out um, in the book. And you just have to use some kind of some common sense and have some, you know, be smart about your food safety and for anything, not just your meats and, and cheese and produce and eggs, but also for your produce. Cause that's the one that most people are most relaxed about. And yet that's how you're most likely to get sick. Awesome. I am so glad that you pointed that out to our listeners because it's it's definitely an issue uh, and one that is sorely overlooked. And your book is is filled with, you know, not only these citations, but common sense. And when you're pregnant, I can't think of a better time to really listen to your gut and your intuition about what to eat and what activities to engage in or not engage in. And it does such a great job of, you know, you're covering what to eat or not to eat when you have nausea or heartburn or fatigue and why real food can help you and what all these deficiencies mean and how to argue for your own diet and with your care providers. There's an entire exercise section there's a toxicity section. You even talk about supplements and herbs too, which I feel like so many people take them 
especially pregnant women. I've seen the site, the stat that you cited a few times myself, that it's over half of the pregnant women in America that have taken some sort of herbal supplement over the counter unprescribed. And and that's kind of alarming to me in some ways, just thinking that it's natural, so it's safe. And I think we fall into that same category with our fruits and vegetables too. We forget to wash them and think about where they came from. Yeah. So I can't thank you enough for these two books. I think that these are amazing gifts for anybody that you know is pregnant or um, trying to become pregnant. The Real Food for Pregnancy, I feel like if you follow that diet alone, that would be a fertility diet in and of itself because it is so nutritious dense and just a great way to get you feeling good before you get pregnant. So if you have one piece of advice for our listeners before we conclude all those pregnant moms out there, what would it be? These questions, I'm always terrible at answering these questions. (laughs) (laughs) Hmm, Okay, how do I distill down like 350 pages into uh, one one sentence? I think what I'll go with is embrace mindfulness for a number of reasons. So A, mindfulness applies to every part of our life, like not just mindful eating, but also like our mental health, like what sorts of activities we engage in or don't, what products we put on our body and how they make us feel, what we're ready to do or not ready to do postpartum, just like everything. So embrace mindfulness in all facets. I feel like, and this will be something that's not like, I can't put a citation behind it, but your intuition and the signals, your senses, they're all super heightened during pregnancy. And it would be silly for us to disregard that entirely. Like we can learn a lot from science. We can also learn a lot and probably more so from listening to our own signals. So like, why might you be craving a certain food? There's like probably a dozen or more possible reasons behind that. And you're not going to have a randomized controlled trial telling you what each of your cravings (laughs) or signals your body is telling you is saying. But like, just an example, you know, you mentioned a lot of women are meat averse during pregnancy. On the flip side, there's a lot of people who are who crave meat during pregnancy. And I find that particularly among clients who are formerly vegetarian or vegan pre pregnancy, like your body seems to know (laughs) what you need on on some level. And so just honor and trust that like it, it's just serves you well during pregnancy, during birth, during postpartum healing, during mothering, to learn to tune into those cues and honor them. Like it's not about pushing through a lot of a lot of pregnancy stuff, postpartum stuff is about surrendering and listening. You know, so that would be my that would be my best advice. I love that. I think that's probably the most important thing you've said today. You know how I feel about mindfulness, but certainly something that we can't drive home enough, especially if you are living in the U.S. and navigating the Western medical system that is sometimes sometimes structured to guide you towards fear-based decisions when if you just took a second and a deep breath and leaned into your own feelings, which are super high, like you said, you might have the best possible outcome. Yeah. And then my book's there to give you data behind that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Tr- like your intuition will guide you. And then when you need to like prove it to someone, like go to whatever section of the book and like, all right, here's some hardcore evidence. <laughs> yes. It's hard. It's really hard navigating this system during pregnancy, especially when you're coming up against all sorts of decisions made on fear. You're totally right. A lot of the decisions that you're asked to make or situations you're put in during pregnancy and birth are fear-based, unfortunately. It's uh, something that 
also desperately needs to change. That's a topic for another author. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. I truly appreciate it. And and all the hard work that went into getting these much needed texts out there. And if you're listening, these are certainly two books that should make your bookshelf, whether you are just trying to get pregnant or have already been there, or maybe you're trying for number two. So that's it for now. Until next week. Bye for now. Thanks for listening to Fertile Minds Radio, hosted at www.ladyportions.com, where you'll find past episodes, show notes, and free meditations. If you've benefited from what you've heard, leave a comment or review so it makes it easier for others to find this valuable wisdom. Let's help elevate each other. Thanks for listening.